0: Welcome to Kul Isha, the podcast that gives Orthodox
1: women a voice.
0: Welcome back to Cole Isha. This week, I'm joined by Hani Fingerer from Waterbury, Connecticut. Hani is a labor and delivery nurse. And she chose nursing as a second career after giving birth to her first baby. She currently works as a labor and delivery nurse. She also works in postpartum care and as an expert nursing consultant for attorneys on malpractice cases. She's passionate about patient education, and she started an Instagram page called Yoleta Academy, which is geared to fill education gaps in women's health, pregnancy, and postpartum with a special focus of needs in the from community. So welcome, Hani. I'm so excited that you're here with me tonight.
1: Thank you. It's an honor. Tell
0: me a little bit about you. What made you decide to choose nursing? um, And what made you
1: decide to get into this education niche? So um, when I finished seminary, got married pretty quickly after and was just doing the standard Bisiaco you know, standard degree with um, no direction at that point. And I was still finding myself um, in the middle of getting that just standard Jewish bachelor's. The plan was for it to lead me somewhere. Still undecided. I had my first baby. When I got pregnant, I just fell in love. It was never uh, an area that I thought about too much. And um I tried to learn everything that I could. And then eventually I started speaking to friends who realized I had a lot of knowledge. So we would discuss different topics and I found myself educating my friends and I couldn't believe that somebody wouldn't love all of this postnatal perinatal stuff as much as I could. Um, It was just like, why don't you do this research? How could you not know all of this if you're pregnant and you're having a baby too? Um, So... I did a lot of education and I thought that I knew a lot, but then once I gave birth to my daughter, my oldest, I realized how much I didn't know, especially with how to deal with the hospital experience. I really had a bad hospital experience. Although my pregnancy was low risk, my birth uh, objectively was, you know, fine. Everything turned out great. But I just feel like I didn't get the treatment that I should have, even though I prepared, even though my husband prepared, even though I had a doula. And then once I had my baby, was finishing up my bachelor's, I I said, you know, I want to be a maternity nurse. This is what I want to do. It just all clicked. And I did have to wait a little bit. My husband was in school and it wasn't a good time for me to go. We just couldn't pull it off, both of us together. So at um, a little bit after I finished my bachelor's in liberal arts and sciences, I started working. I was living in New York at that time in Brooklyn. And I started working as a service coordinator for the New York City Early Intervention Program. Um, with those that are not familiar with that, it's called Birth to Three in other states, Where um, there are interventional services for children with developmental delays. So I was kind of like a case manager and would facilitate the process for families since it's such a large program in New York City. Um, And I enjoyed it tremendously. I enjoyed the relationship that I made with families that I worked with. And I was in some sort of advocacy role as well. The majority of people that did um, that were in the position that I was in, they were social workers. And once my husband finished school, I, I stopped my job in order to pursue nursing. And I had three kids at the time already. Wow. (laughs) Yep. So you went to nursing school with three kids. That must have been tough. Yeah, it it was. um, I did the the advantage that I had was that the actual nursing program with the nursing courses was 15 months. So I powered through that was kind of what got me through. I said, Okay, it's going to be 15 months of, of craziness, but I'll get through. And actually, I'm an academic by heart, I love learning. Um, I would do it if I could do it for a living. And so I enjoyed it. It was like a self actualization kind of thing, too. I went to NYU and I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and it was a really great program. I got into another program and um, into two other programs, and I was considering where to go. And logistically, it just worked out for me to go to NYU. Um, But at the end of the day, I'm so grateful that I went there. They have a great nursing philosophy that's really stayed with me for the duration of my nursing career. And it really helps shape the way I look at the healthcare system in general.
0: That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about what life is like as a labor and delivery nurse. Like, obviously, you help women who are having babies, right? Walk us through a quote, unquote, typical day, because there's really no such thing as a typical day, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) No, there's not. And you would know that because you're an ED nurse practitioner, correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I like to say that our unit is a triage ICU med surge OR emergency department unit all in one for pregnant women. Wow. That That sounds very intense. (laughs) Yeah. So, and and we develop that skill set from start to finish, where we'll have women that will come in and we triage them and determine their acuity, um, whether it's something that's that they can be sent home for, or requires further monitoring, or is an emergent situation that we need to intervene as soon as possible. And then we have the labor management part, um, where. Someone is in labor and then we have the high risk management part where some women can be very sick. Some women are impatient; They can't leave. They have to be pregnant inpatient. And then we also have those who are having a C-section. They, we do the full pre-op before the, you know, surgery circulating in the OR and then post-op recovering. And then hopefully all is good and we can transfer them to postpartum, which is what I kind of equate the med surge. Mm-hmm unit um so what i love about it is that it's a huge skill set that i've been able to learn i like the adrenaline nothing is ever routine there's never um you're never going to walk into a routine situation you never know what's going to hit you you have to think you know on your feet and just really go quickly there's a lot of controlled chaos and contrary to popular belief we don't snuggle babies all day
0: (laughs) that's so funny because my mother when I was becoming a nurse she's like you should really work in the baby nursery such a happy place you will just take care of babies I was like mom I think I'm gonna work in the emergency room and she just couldn't understand why I'd want to do that you know but I relate to what you're saying because I love how broad the experience is also and how how like um how wide your skill set becomes because you get a little bit of everything and you really get to develop expertise in so many different areas. I mean, some, there is an option always to like, sort of go down a very narrow path and buttonhole yourself and become like a real expert in one specific area in nursing. But I wanted to keep it more broad and it sounds similar to sort of controlled chaos like you described in the emergency room. Like, you know, anyone who's not part of the staff looks at it and says, what, the, what is going on here? Like this place is on wheels. But whoever understands the working of the, you know the inside workings of the place knows that, yeah, it looks like a mess, but you know people are on top of it. We know what's going on and, you know and the patients are getting good care which is the most important part. So yeah, I definitely relate to that whole aspect of it for sure.
1: Yeah. And I think in some sense, there are times where we cross paths, right? Where you get pregnant women either because sometimes the admission process in a hospital, I don't know if that's like that by you, but sometimes the admission process in a hospital is that at certain times, if it's an off shift, a pregnant woman has to go through the ED just to get up to the labor and delivery unit. Or if you know there's a trauma like an MVA or something, motor vehicle accident, Um, And it's so funny, because I am, when I get called down to the ED for a pregnant woman, let's say who had an MVA, I have this little uh, butterfly in my stomach. And I'm like, Oh, my gosh, what am I going to see, you know, get like this little fear. Um, Meanwhile, you guys can handle the craziest traumas, but I will say you are notorious for being scared of pregnant women.
0: <laughs> That's because for some reason, no one wants to deliver a baby in the emergency room. But at the same time, some of my most memorable experiences are actual deliveries because it's so much fun when you have a, a new baby born in the air. I shouldn't say for some reason, the reason is because it's not the right environment. It's not the safest environment. You want, you know, a pregnant woman's coming in, most labor and delivery situations go smoothly and everyone is well and everyone goes home happy. But once in a while, things get out of hand and there are true emergencies and you want the patient, both the mother and the baby, you really are dealing with two patients. You want them both to be as safe as can be. And the emergency room, we have, you know, crash carts and and things set up in the corner covered on a under a blue tarp just in case you know um but we don't want to have to use them unless absolutely necessary because if god forbid something goes wrong we're not the best place for it to happen the labor and delivery floor is um but we have had a few deliveries since i've been a nurse and um it's so much fun thank god all of them went okay and usually we're used to dealing with people who are like you know having a really rough day, don't want to be there in pain. So unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of death and dying. And so when we do have a, a baby born, it's always so much fun. It's like, it's like something really happy just happened, you know? So it's like, it's fun for us. Actually, where I work right now as a nurse practitioner, we don't have women's health in my hospital. And I kind of miss that. But in my
1: old job, we had a lot. So it was really fun. Yeah, yeah. I, and usually the precip deliveries, you know, the s- s- drive-by deliveries we call them that do deliver in the ED for the most part they're okay. They're you know, things things are usually good. Of course right. there's the, you know, and and it's interesting because some hospital I've worked in four different hospitals, so I've seen different ways that hospitals do things. Some hospitals they have like that equipment like you said somewhere in the corner in the ED and other hospitals we will run from our unit with all the stuff, like we have kind of a whole thing set up and then we just fly, (laughs) fly down to the ED with our stuff, with our hemorrhage cart, you know, in case.
0: Right. Uh, So that sounds like a little bit more risky because you may not get there in time, but yeah. And then like, there's always the situations where you're getting, like you hear the code announced overhead to the main lobby, someone just delivered in their car and then everyone goes running. So like, you know, these kind of things happen. It's it's not fun for the patient because no one wants to deliver like in an uncontrolled environment but it kind of gives you that like adrenaline kick. And if everybody's okay, then it's just like, Oh, that was so fun. A new baby was born, you know? So yeah, I always enjoyed that. Um, so tell me a little bit about your Academy. So you started this Instagram page with this goal of education. Why, why did you want to bring this um, awareness to people? What exactly did you feel was the need? What, what
1: gave you the motivation to start this? So, As I told you, I'm obsessed. I'm a geek with all of this stuff having to do with starting from preconception all the way through postpartum and beyond women's health in general, but obviously concentrating on this childbearing stage of a woman's life. And being on social media for a while, I've seen this beautiful work done by different professionals, say in mental health, in um, those who are involved with helping couples with infertility, and just different health areas. And I thought it was so beautiful and so nice. And at the same time, I started to notice that there was really nothing on prenatal stuff from specifically geared toward the Orthodox Jewish population, because there are special, unique concerns Um, that we deal with. And it's so ironic as well, because we have probably one of the highest birth rates um, among in the world, you know, or at least among the Western Westernized countries. And it, it just stood out to me. My husband kept telling me, you talk so much, you have so much to say, start one of these Instagrams talking about all your stuff. I said, No, I'm not gonna have anything to say. I don't know what I'm gonna say. Um, And eventually, after a little bit of time, I think COVID happened. And maybe, maybe the world went a little bit more virtual and started interacting more with social media. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know.
0: No, I, I agree. I think that's very much the case.
1: Yeah. So I think that once that happened, I just got more of a push. And I had a few friends and other supporters that encouraged me even though I was just terrified it's it's scary to put yourself out there like that and in the beginning I thought I was just going to not show face and just you know be kind of a blind account where I'll write things on posts and people will learn that way and I don't know one thing led to another I started going more and more out of my comfort zone and now people know who I am I just tell them that it's someone with the same name and that looks like me (laughs) it's not really me um you know, it's funny that you're a little camera shy because you do such a great job. Thank you. I mean, I I I think I've gotten used to it. I I'm I'm pretty extroverted. I don't really have a hard time. But at the same time, I always wonder, like, I don't know. I think everyone maybe has their little reservations or whatnot. It's just, it's just you know, a little bit funny for me to go public like that. Um, I'm not used to that. That's all. And it's become a little bit more routine now. And I just try not to think about whatever I put out there. <laughs> After I do it, I'm like, okay, there it is. It's out there. And like, let's pretend it never happened. Um, and I so I had supporters. I had friends that were encouraging me to do it. And I really received so much feedback, so much good feedback. Um, and since I've made a connection with some other Women's health professionals, namely OBGYNs, that do great work, like Dr. Alyssa Hellman from the Confident College. She's another amazing account to follow. Um, and uh, Lauren Seidman from Birth Positive. Those are two of the ones that I can think of offhand that I make connections with that are also from women who are there to educate. Um, I, I come from a different angle where I'm a nurse, so I'm in the hospital and I also specialize. Specifically in um, labor and delivery and postpartum. Whereas, you know, Dr. Hellman, she's an OBGYN, so she specializes in it all. Um, So we see it from a different perspective and um, a a birth educator, which I'm not also, she, you know, she has her different experience. So I do think I bring that unique part of it. Um, And I think that unfortunately, people have really negative interactions with the healthcare system. Um, Oftentimes women who are healthy, otherwise never had surgery, never had any major medical conditions. Their first encounter with the hospital is coming to have a baby. And I think that it can be very scary. Um, It definitely takes away some form of control. So I think another Another goal that I have is to reassure women and to help them navigate that scary environment um, where you do lose control. There are policies and protocols that sometimes people are subject to, whether or not they like it, especially now with COVID, where people can't, for example, bring their birth team with them. Um, They can't. At one point, it was a choice between doula and their partner. Um, And in some places, it still is. So I think that another focus of why I started this Yola Z Academy is to give everyone, the general population, from women and anyone else who follows me, and I have many followers who are completely unaffiliated, and it's interesting to them to learn about the things that come up. Um, I just, I want to give them that reassurance and I guess make them feel a little bit calmer and a little bit more in control when they go into the hospital, knowing what they can and cannot you know, refuse or how they can make informed decisions and communicate in a way with the staff that it will be well received instead of being viewed as uncooperative or defiant or oppositional.
0: Yeah. And it's so true what you said about um, your role being different than the physician role, because really the, the physician's job is to carry them, the patient through the pregnancy. And then, you know, obviously to deliver the baby and make sure everything goes safely. But as a nurse, you spend so much more time with the patient during the actual labor and delivery process. And then, like you said, afterwards in postpartum, and there's so much crucial time for education. I think even, you know, I'm basing this on my own experience as a, as a pregnant uh, patient postpartum patient myself. um, There's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of downtime during labor. There's a lot of downtime afterwards in postpartum. And, you know, when it comes to As a new mom, being prepared to care for the baby, being prepared to care for yourself, which I think is like so often overlooked. Like the focus becomes so much on how are you going to take care of this baby, which of course is major. But then, you know, I think it's also so important for like how is the mom going to care for herself in all of this because you have to be able to be well enough and, you know, not in pain and be able to focus and all that. So you do have so much more opportunity um, for teaching and for, you know, helping the mom transition into the new role and really the whole family unit, if, if the dad is there as well. So I think you're absolutely right. Like there's so, there's so much of course that the doctors can inform and educate, but you have a very unique role with like a unique perspective, um, and a unique opportunity. And it's so cool that you're using that to bring like, uh, awareness and education of all these various issues.
1: Yeah, well, it's a doctor can have uh, like 20 patients in the hospital at one time. They just don't have the availability, practically speaking, that a nurse does because we're assigned to a smaller number of patients that we spend a longer time with. So it's not realistic for a doctor to spend all that time with patients, educating them just by nature of their job. Um, I, I'm sure you know this as a nurse yourself, our job, uh, a, a huge part of our job is health prevention and education, right? That's a huge part of what nursing schools emphasize is a nurse's role and within a nurse's scope of practice, education. For sure. um, so, and I've, I've really tapped into that strength of mine as the longer I worked, I'm, I'm working for a little over six and a half years now in this area. The longer I worked, the more I I realized how good I am at educating. Um, my English name is Alexandra, Alex, I go by at work. And sometimes we'll have a difficult patient and I'll come in and they'll say, oh, Alex, this is a patient for you. This is an Alex <laughs> patient. Because I think that I kind of mastered a way to communicate with the patient in a non-confrontational way, coming from a point of educating. So for example, a patient will say, I'm declining baby medications that are typically given within the first hour of birth. And I say, that's fine. It's your choice. Do you understand what they're given for and why they are supposed to be given? And the patient will say, oh no, I'm not. Their friend just told them, oh, the hospital is going to make you do all these things and don't let them force you. And then once I explain it, they say, oh, okay. Like it's as simple as that. Not always, but a lot of times it's just that there's a knowledge gap and they don't understand why and they get frustrated because of that. So um, I think that I I've really, that's why I enjoy my role so much because I have a little bit more of an intimate interaction with the patient in the hospital than a doctor will. I
0: wonder, um, from what you're saying, I wonder, do you think that um, the reason for like refusal and, you know, what might be perceived as difficult behavior, um, maybe it comes from this feeling of powerlessness, going back to what you said earlier, like you're coming into a hospital, this is for many women, um, you know, obviously they're at that age, childbearing age, they're otherwise young, pretty healthy. Now they're in a situation they've never been in. It's like, here, take off all your clothes, put on a gown. We're going to start jabbing you. And before you know it, like you're totally helpless and you feel like you have no control over the situation. And so maybe that contributes to people feeling like, okay, I'm going to take some control back I'm going to say no to this, I'm going to say no to that, because I want to feel like I have some control over the situation. And of course, the lack of education or the lack of knowledge uh, can, can uh, compound that. Um, but I wonder if that has something to do with why people are quick to refuse things or quick to sort of push back on interventions.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think that that's probably the majority of the reason why patients will refuse refuse things because so much of their agency is taken away from them. I see it all the time. I remember a patient that wanted to feed their baby a certain kind of organic formula. And I remember there being such a, a commotion about it because the hospital has never encountered that before. And we give the hospital formula and we have to chart on the hospital formula and the patient was insistent, no, the hospital formula has some kind of ingredients that they don't want. And they were so powerless because the, the staff was basically coercing them into feeding their babies, something that they didn't want to feed. Um, that's just one example, but yes, absolutely. I think that that's a, probably the most common reason, maybe 80% of the time. And That's where we come in as educators. Once I educate a patient, well, this is why we have this policy. This is why you need an IV. This is why we need to draw blood work. This is why you need continuous monitoring because the research has shown that in your condition, um, there can be a much greater risk for stillbirth. So I'm just giving you an example. Um, you know, like when it comes to Pitocin, that can be a dirty word among some people and it, definitely has a place for being a dirty word in some situations and in other situations, it's a blessing and explaining to someone, no, it's not, it's not a bad thing. It needs to be used in the appropriate times. So yes, absolutely. And there are also ways to negotiate standard policies and protocols. And that's another um, purpose of mine for doing what I do to teach people how to do that in a way that will be well received. And that's the key because as soon as you start going down that road of opposition, it's just going to be a power struggle between the patient and the nurse. And I also like to take a step back for myself and just sometimes observe what's going on in the unit and how I'll see a power struggle between a nurse and a patient and just remind ourselves to de-escalate a little bit and step back and remember, we're in the position of power here, not the patient, the patient is powerless. And just seeing it from the patient's perspective,
0: empathize with them a little and what they're going through, I think goes a long way. But, you know, when you when it's so routine to you as the nurse or physician, or whoever it is on the other side, like, it's just another day in the life of my work. But for that patient, it's such a unique experience for them. And they're trying so hard to like, hold on to some sort of, you know, control over the situation, power, like you said, but um, I like that you're doing that because very often patients who push back get treated not so well by staff. They don't, staff doesn't like that when that happens. So they want to, you know, give a recommendation and the patient to follow the recommendation and then shalom, is you know, like everyone's happy, we can all move on. But as soon as that pushback happens, like you said, that, that power struggle happens. And it's also like, sometimes you're in the middle of a busy day and it's like, Hey, now I have to stop. I have to stop, but not move on to my next task, but take 20 minutes in this room to explain something that I was hoping I wouldn't have to do, you know? So it like kind of also ruins your, the flow of your day a little bit when those kind of things happen is it's tough all around.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, from my perspective, of course, sometimes it's so much easier For a patient to just get the epidural, then we don't have to run around chasing that baby's heart rate. Then we don't have to give her as much support. She's maybe not screaming as much, which is, I think, hard even for labor and delivery nurses sometimes to see because pain is pain. And normally in the rest of the world, besides for labor, we're taught that pain is bad and we need to take it away. And like you said, just take a step back. This is not going to be convenient because this patient does not want, this woman does not want an epidural and it's not black and white. Sometimes a patient kind of gets slowly encouraged into an epidural. She doesn't think it's against her will, but then you can do so many things to actually honor her wishes to not have the epidural that may be inconvenient. So like you said, it may sometimes throw a wrench in and make your flow inconvenient. I actually like that challenge. I take all the midwife patients that will deliver on hands and knees. Some nurses will gladly take a very complicated sick patient and give me that patient that is going to deliver on her hands and knees because they're just not used to it. It doesn't happen often. And that again is also another goal of mine. Like you said, routine, you said that word. I tell woman, I say, if you're having this problem where you want something and a provider, a nurse, or your doctor or midwife seems to be giving you pushback, you can just say to them, I know that this is routine for you, but it's not routine for me just, and that's such a good reminder for any healthcare provider. This is not something routine happening in this patient's life. This is a very significant event that is only going to happen a few times in their life that they will remember forever. Yeah, 100%. You know, that reminds me of this um,
0: picture that was circulating online, uh, maybe like a year or two ago. I don't know if you saw it, but it was like really powerful image. And this woman had posted it after giving birth with like, a, you know, an explanation. Um, but essentially, a birth photographer had photographed, um, basically, you can see uh, the doorway to the bathroom from the labor and delivery room. And the doorway sort of framed the nurse. Um, you can see the nurse was crouching down. She was obviously assisting the patient, but you didn't see the patient and it was black and white. And you it was so powerful because it captured the nurse doing something that was so routine for the nurse, yet was such a rare experience for the patient, right? And for the patient, You know, like you said, only happens a handful of times for some people, only once, and they'll remember that experience forever. And as a nurse, you encounter countless patients. So, of course, you're not going to remember each one, but it just somehow this picture just captured that so beautifully. Like the nurse was just going about her business doing what she does. But for the patient, that moment of care was just like so incredibly beautiful and powerful. And the photographer, I guess, sensed that. And, you know, the mom or the photographer wrote um, a whole explanation basically saying that um, how they appreciated the role of the nurse, because from their perspective, like this was so unique. And to think that the nurse does this every day, helping people in such an intimate way, um, it was so it was really beautiful. And as a as a healthcare provider, too, as a nurse myself, I found it so um powerful and like made me stop in my tracks because obviously I work in a different role than you do, but it's the same thing. Like no one, most people don't plan to come to the ER once in a while they do, but um, (laughs) most people don't. And like, they're having a really unique experience that they're going to go home and talk about like, I wound up in the ER. I was there for six hours, you know, and like, it's a whole thing to them. And for me, it's just like another day at work. So like, it's such a powerful reminder to stop and like consider the patient's perspective also. Um, So yeah, I totally relate to that. Um, So, okay, back to your, back to your education initiative. So are you focused on anything in specific, especially as it relates to the from community? Or is it more like just general knowledge that you want to give? Are there any like specific passions
1: that you have? Tell me a little bit about your education initiative. Okay, so first of all, I, I, I'm involved in my community you know, the community rabbis send people to me, women who have questions, who are looking for a provider, just have some kind of woman's health something. And I've spoken to the rabbis as well. And what, what struck me is that even the rabbi community has some gaps in knowledge, which they don't realize that they have about certain health issues. And that can completely change the halachic ruling, the ruling of the Jewish law as it pertains to a specific circumstance. And I think that one big purpose that I have is I want women to really understand in great detail, their health conditions, the testing that's done prenatally, why it's being done, not just testing, but interventions, what the well, it, if you refer to testing, then what would be the interventions should there be a positive result or a result that's unexpected? And even just their particular condition, understanding the mechanism behind why it's happening. Because if a woman is very well versed in her health condition, that has a big influence in how halacha is ruled. And so many times I've spoken to women who really didn't have an understanding um about their health condition and the rabbi maybe was not he he was maybe a more of a generalist. I like to compare Rabbanim to doctors sometimes, right? Specialties. Some yes. So some are more of a generalist where they're a rabbi in a shul and they have people coming to them all the time and different with different, um, halakhos, and some specialize in the medical area, some specialize in the kashris area. And, um, if it's not, if it's just a generalist, they'll have even less of a knowledge about specific health conditions. And sometimes they know to refer out and sometimes they think that they know enough. And then the halacha is ruled to the detriment of somebody. Um, and it causes her aggravation when it could not have been had she had the details and knowledge to bring to her rabbi. So um, that's a big purpose. I educate in my scope, so I don't ever rule on halacha. I will never tell somebody these are the halachos. I will say some people, you know, rule halacha this way or that way, but I need to be careful. In the area that I'm educating in, because I don't want to, I don't want people to get the impression that I'm giving them some kind of halachic pass or something. But I will, you know, let's say I'll give you an example. I'm just thinking off the bad inductions, right? So there are medical inductions and then there are elective inductions where um, somebody ostensibly is choosing to induce at this time, even though from a medical perspective, it will be okay for her to continue the pregnancy for the time being. And induction is very heavily laden with Jewish law. Um, So sometimes a woman may not understand that she truly needs to have an induction. And the way she presents her condition to her rub, her rub will say, oh, it's fine. You can continue to wait. So that's one example I can think of fasting um, fasting on fast day like Yom Kippur um, and hearing a woman say, oh, well, my rabbi said that it's okay for me to fast. But then knowing that she has some kind of condition that may complicate things and it would be dangerous for her to fast. So these are just examples of areas where I want women to really have every last detail so that they can get the most accurate halacha psak possible because halacha is very, very um, specifically ruled according to specific situations. It's never black and white. Halacha is
0: all in the detail, and it sounds like what you're doing is providing the women with the details so that they can then present them to the rabbi, which is so empowering. You know, like the quote, "knowledge is power," but it's so true because it's very empowering to know about your condition in this in this setting. You know, with the uh, halachic rulings too, because you want to make sure that obviously what you're going to do is halachically sanctioned and best for the mom, best for the baby but also in terms of the patient advocating for themselves in the hospital with their doctors and all that. It's so empowering when you know, when you have that knowledge and, you know, going back to what you're saying about when patients refuse things, oh, my friend told me to refuse it, but I don't really know why. But once you give them the knowledge, they have the power to really stand by their decision and understand why they're making that decision. So I think it's so important.
1: Yeah. And I like to say oftentimes patients will make the same decision that we would quote unquote for them with our policies and protocols. For example, going back to that newborn medication example, right? So they would, if they have the knowledge and they would make that same decision that we're recommending of giving the baby the medications, but now it's coming from them. So it's coming from a place of power of shared decision-making where I'm involved. I'm not just sitting in the back of the bus and somebody's driving the bus for me to get to my baby, but I'm actually the one that's guiding the driver and telling the driver how to drive. Um, And so often that's really what makes or breaks the situation. And that's what happened in my birth where my first birth, where, thankfully all of my births have been uncomplicated but that first birth things probably would have turned out the same i probably would have had the same interventions actually no some not um, but but if i were given the voice to say them and that could have made all the difference
0: and change your whole perspective on the situation you would have felt like you had a good experience versus a bad experience even though the outcome
1: Would have been the same, right? Essentially. 100%. I also want to say that I like to give the back end, the behind the scenes of what goes on in the labor and delivery unit or the postpartum unit. Um, Not because I want to say how great we are, even though I think we're pretty cool. It's not for bragging purposes, but it's more for this is what your nurse has to do today so when she maybe is not spending the half an hour that you'd like in your room, it's not because she doesn't care about you. It's because the healthcare system in our country is set up this way. And these are her limitations too, because she's a human and it relates to the emergency department, I think in the same way where it's not a controlled environment. I don't know if you have this thing about the bus pulling up and all of the patients getting out and coming to you, but we definitely call yeah. it the labor bus
0: it's, it's very funny. It's like the bus stopped on the corner and 10 people roll in at once. And it's very, and and you can also have an hour where nothing really happens and no one comes. And then all of a sudden here come 20 people. What, like what just happened? Why did all these 20 people decide to come at the same second? So I guess it's a, it's a relatable thing. (laughs) So
1: yeah. Yeah. Because the labor and delivery unit is the emergency department for pregnant women. So we have that same, um, experience where we we can't control what goes on and i think that for patients to understand that too where yes you had to wait two hours for your doctor to come see you and i'm so sorry that that happened but your doctor was doing an emergency C-section and then had to go see a patient that was, you know, going to die or whatever it is. Um, So yes, it is inconvenient. And when people call me and ask me to give them recommendations about providers and which hospital they should go to, at the end of the day, my disclaimer is always, just because you choose the best provider in your brain, the best, there's no such thing as the best, but in your mind, this is the best choice for you. And just because you choose what's in your mind, the best choice of hospital for you doesn't mean that your experience is going to be amazing. And you have to dive in that everything lines up just so, so that it is amazing because you can't control situations like this. You can't control the entire us pulling up and so many other pregnant women who want to give birth at the same time as you, and you won't maybe get that attention. And then you go over to the postpartum unit and your nurse has six patients and she just can't give you the time that you need help with breastfeeding or whatever it is, help with getting your baby out and giving the baby to you because you just had a C-section. And um, this might be a little bit controversial. It's not controversial, but it's just something to keep in mind. Sometimes patients will tell me I called for my nurse for 15 minutes to give me the baby for my husband or whatever it is, you know, to, because I, he can't pass things to me because I'm Nida and she didn't come. And when she came, she was so angry at me. So when I explained to the patient, but that's because she was busy medicating another patient um, or tending to a patient that had an emergency and for her, she doesn't understand what this is all about, anyway, and this is also strange to her. And maybe there are ways that, even if it's a Bidiyaved situation, right, where your husband really shouldn't pass things hand to hand, but you can, you can try to maybe not do it exactly that way. But maybe it's not following halacha all the way. But just having these considerations where it's not an environment that the nurse is at your beck and call and ready to run in at any moment to do exactly as you need. So I think that that definitely gives women from woman perspective and also in preparation for a situation like this that might happen to speak to your rev beforehand. What happens if the nurse doesn't come? How does that work? Can my husband do whatever it is that I'm afraid um, I might need help with that, my nurse may not be available to do for me. Um, Especially today, where some women have to choose between a doula and a husband, that's such a hard choice to make. And if they choose their husband, because he's the father of their baby, and he rightfully belongs at the birth of their child, she may need some extra help that in normal times, she'd be able to get from a female. So these are all just and her nurse may not be available to her the entire time because she's got other tasks to do. So I think that these are all good perspectives for from women to have when they're figuring out how to follow Hawaha in the best way in these crazy, shall I say the word unprecedented times? (laughs) I think we've heard the word unprecedented
0: this year more than we've ever heard that word before but you know I think what you're saying now goes back to the whole education concept in terms of the halacha finding out things before it's all about empowering through education right it really goes back to that concept I want to um I want to pick on something you said in a good way because I wanted to the the horns of nurses for a second because I noticed you said that you when you pick the best doctor and when you pick the best hospital and I didn't hear you say when you pick the best nurses, right? Because obviously it's not in your control who your nurse is going to be, but so often you think I'm going to get the best doctor. I'm going to go to a hospital that has a great reputation that has the best doctors with the lowest C-section rates or whatever your goals happen to be. Right. At the end of the day, what's going to make or break your experience is a nurse because there's always going to be a nurse at your bedside through the delivery and really through any hospitalization, um, whatever the issue is, doctors pop in and out. And I, have amazing respect for doctors. I love doctors, I work with them hand in hand, Um, but they're not the ones that are gonna be holding your hand through the process. They're not the ones that are gonna be, you know, helping you in your most vulnerable time. And, you know, this is not labor and delivery related, but my father um, several years ago had a bad outcome from a surgery, wound up in an ICU after a routine procedure, right? Unfortunately, thank God he's doing okay now. But um, at the time, he was in a local hospital in New Jersey, because it was just like a routine thing. So no one thought he needed to like go to the best of the best. And he wound up in the ICU in this small community hospital. So we had like friends and family like, what's going to be he's in this hospital, it doesn't have a great reputation, transfer him to the city, transfer him to the city. And they all kept saying transfer him to the city, especially like a relative of ours, who's like, very influential guy, it's like transfer him to the city. And I, as a nurse was observing the care that he was getting in the ICU was incredible. In this small community hospital that people write off as like, eh, it's not a good place, whatever. The nurses were so attentive. They were so on top of him, not to mention we had um, his primary care doctor who knows him so well and is like a family friend was working hand in hand with them. And I said, are you crazy? Why would you take him out of this environment where he's getting such good care in this small no name hospital and transfer him to the city to some hospital that has a fantastic name and, you know, doctors that make U.S. News and World Report top 100 with a staff that doesn't know him. We don't know who his nurses are going to be. We don't know what the facilities are like. So I think like that perspective was unique coming as a nurse, because I was like, it's the nurses that are at his bedside the entire time, taking such good care of him. And Baruch Hashem, he did very well. But it's such an important thing that people overlook, like go to a hospital that has a reputation of having amazing nurses. I can't say that enough. Um, And of course, you never know who's going to be taking care of you. There's no guarantee and someone could be having a bad day and that could just be bad luck. Um, but I think that's something that's overlooked that people need to consider. What do you think?
1: Oh yeah. And I often get people asking me, you know, how do I know how to choose the best hospital? How do I know that I'm my doctor and the nurses are truly going to be in support of me having a VBAC? How do I know this? Firstly, magnet hospitals, right? Um, magnet is a designation that a hospital earns. Um, and it, it's stipulate certain conditions that have to be met on the count of the nurses, certain um, certain staffing ratios, certain education that the nurses have to have. So that's definitely you're making a great point. I never thought about that aspect of choosing a hospital that has good nurses, but I would think a hospital that has magnet designation can be a way for you to decide what hospital you're choosing. Um, you know, and then there's the Leapfrog Group. I don't know if you know any of these. Um, of yeah. these organizations, you know, things like that. The Leapfrog group is one other area to figure out what the uh, rate of uh, mistakes, you know, med- medication errors are, C-section rates are, etc. cetera, for hospitals that report them. Not all hospitals, it's crazy to think, but hospitals are not mandated mandated to report their C-section rate. Did you know that?
0: No, I didn't
1: know. Isn't that crazy? So yeah. when you go on that Leapfrog group website, and you see your hospital and your hospital's C section rate is not reported, then that should be a little bit of a red flag. <laughs> Why oh, are they not reporting? I'm not saying that it's necessarily high, but of course, I think that there is legislature out there to start, I think, in July twenty twenty one. I'm not a hundred percent sure. And C section rates are you can't you can't just look at it at face value. There's There's different factors that have to be controlled for, and there is a way to figure out a norm, you know, the C-section rate that should be a standard, but some um, hospitals
0: by definition have a very high risk population. And then that might increase their C-section rate because their patients are more likely to have them, but because they're high risk. So yeah, you have to know the situation, but also like word of mouth, your friends, did they have good experiences? Did they not? I don't know how you feel about this, but I know a lot of hospitals are shutting down their nurseries and encouraging rooming in with the baby 24 seven to me as a mom, I think that's extremely hard. Like I found the whole process to be extremely exhausting and I was lucky enough to be in a place where the, where they do have a nursery that would honestly be one of my considerations. Um, when deciding which doctor to use based on which hospital they deliver. in, if there's no nursery, and there's a doctor who's just as good and goes to a hospital that does have a nursery, I would go to the hospital that has a nursery, because as much as I love my babies, it's very, very tiring. And you can use a little break, you know?
1: Yes, 100%. That's a topic for like an entire two episodes of a podcast. (laughs) But um Yes. And I agree. It's a very complicated topic with hospitals shifting to that. And just to say that one of the hospitals, I work at two hospitals, one of the hospitals that I work at still does have a nursery. Um, But again, you have to pray that it will be open that night that you're there. Because if the unit is slammed, they close the nursery. And the nurse that would typically be in the nursery now goes to take patients. Um, Yeah, Uh, that's That whole thing, yeah, there's a lot of, um, I think that there's some hypocrisy in that because this whole no nursery started with um, baby-friendly hospitals, hospitals that have something called baby-friendly designation. And one of the um, criteria that they have to meet in order to get that designation is that they don't have a nursery, they have rooming in. However, here's the caveat, they also have staffing ratios that they have to meet. In order to get that baby friendly designation. So I think what happened was, was that a lot of hospitals, it's very expensive to get baby friendly designation. And a lot of hospitals don't have that baby friendly designation, but they rode off of that great model of care where we have to room in and the nurse is going to teach you how to take care of your baby, but then they have a much higher amount of patients per nurse. So realistically that nurse cannot do all the things that are touted as the benefits of rooming in. So that's a big conversation, but I hear you. I, you know, we have to be family friendly. So yes, I, I- Can you explain for one second what baby friendly means? Cause it sounds so funny. Like you
0: would think all hospitals are baby friendly. What does that designation actually mean when a hospital is baby friendly?
1: Um, so when I think of it, I think that it's notoriously known as hospitals that have formula under lock and key.
0: Okay. So very much pro breastfeeding. (laughs) Um,
1: yes, very much pro breastfeeding. And there was a place for that because, um, I think starting in like, I don't know, maybe the eighties, the nineties formula companies started really lobbying with the hospitals and giving all the freebies and promoting formula feeding and mothers were not given adequate breastfeeding support. It wasn't pushed as much. It's just like, oh yeah, the baby's hungry, give the baby some formula. And we realized that there are disadvantages to doing that if you can breastfeed and that mothers should receive more support with breastfeeding. I think that's one of the, um, I think that was one of the major drivers to create this designation. Um, So there's a bunch of criteria that they have to meet with rooming in with a certain amount of lactation support. Um, I don't know if, if it's specifically this, but doing certain beneficial things for baby, like delayed cord clamping. I mean, many hospitals have moved toward that. It didn't always used to be that way. Um, but, and those are the benefits that they, I think took from the baby friendly designation, even if they're not themselves designated, but delayed cord clamping, allowing the cord to pulsate for about a minute after birth, because it gives the baby all of the good stem cells in the blood, you know, and hires the baby's blood volume and um, skin immediate skin to skin, unless there's a medical reason that would preclude that things like that. So they have to meet a bunch of criteria that is very friendly to baby. However, again, this is where the standardization of the healthcare system comes in. It's not always friendly to the mom or to the rest of the family. If a mother, I actually just posted on my Instagram, I think it's my last post that says: Imagine if you, if we had a patient that rolled out of surgery from an appendectomy or a gallstone surgery, and as soon as they rolled out of the OR, we handed them a newborn baby and said, "Here you go, take care of the baby and keep it alive." Right. And sometimes, sometimes we forget that a mother that had a C-section just had major surgery and she may not have somebody available to stay with her in the hospital because maybe she's got a two year old and a four year old at home that her husband has to go back to. And now she's left helpless recovering from major surgery. This is not laparoscopic, you know, very low invasive surgery. This is major surgery. And now she's got a little newborn crying. Um, And there's no nursery for the newborn to go to. And maybe she was in labor for 36 hours only to end up in a C-section exhausted, hasn't eaten in who knows how long, nauseous and feeling all the other things that someone a post-op is feeling, but it's a, you know, we only do couplet care and there's no nursery. So sorry, you have to have the baby. So that's the standardization of healthcare that that's the pitfall of having standardization of healthcare. There's no nuance, right? There's no, there's no considering everyone's unique situation and circumstance. So, yeah. And So really, like you said, when you choose a hospital, you ask these kinds of questions, but at the end of the day, even that nursery might be closed if it's slammed on the unit. So you dive into Hashem. I think we as healthcare providers, I, I think that you would agree. It's very clear to us how much we rely on God to have good outcomes I'm sure you'll see these crazy things that will walk through the door, a code, and it's almost impossible that this person will survive. And then they walk out of the hospital a week later with barely a scratch. And you are like, oh my gosh, what in the world just happened? We have this with moms who are very sick or deliver a premature baby. And then we find out that that baby's just fine after it had brain cooling because, you know, we were afraid of brain damage. So I think that at the end of the day, and that's where the whole from piece comes in too, like real amuna and, and bitachon in this kind of situation. Like you said, people are very, I think the From community is society, I would say, is very focused on having the best doctor and the best hospital. And we really do help each other out because we are very health-oriented. Um and that's great, but let's not lose sight of the part that God plays in the whole situation and that he really does play a big part, and that it's not always the hospital's fault if something bad happens.
0: Right, 100%, because you see it on both sides. You see young and healthy people where something just really bizarre happens and you couldn't save their life, and it's like so clear that this was the hand of God. And then on the other hand, like you said, you see situations where you never thought there'd be a good outcome, and there is. Um, so it's really all in Hashem's hands. And yeah, I, that to me also, this role has, brought that to light so much. And it's interesting, because sometimes healthcare providers are accused of being arrogant. And there are definitely enough uh, to have to earn that reputation. But coming from the perspective of from person, you know, who you always put Hashem first in your mind, it's so clear, it's so clear. And, and I think, you know, COVID, I hate talking about COVID anymore. But going, you know, it's so clear, like that, healthcare professionals, doctors, experts, the biggest experts in the world have no clue what to do with this virus. Right. Um, but obviously Hashem wanted it to happen this way. And, and it's the same way, you know, in a, in a microcosm every day that, that we do our work.
1: Yes. Yes, definitely. Definitely. I just remembered a story. Someone messaged me on Instagram that she picked the best doctor because I guess she had a bad experience with a previous baby and, She picked the best doctor and the best hospital, and then she had something postpartum called a retained placenta, where part of her placenta did not come out, and that can cause massive hemorrhage, and it can be life-threatening, and it's not necessarily something that we can avoid. It sometimes just happens, and we don't see that there was a teeny, tiny little piece of the placenta that remains embedded into the uterus. And she said, "Should I sue my doctor? You know, how did this happen? I picked the best doctor, and two weeks later, I came in hemorrhaging." And I said, "No, this is something that just happened." Um, and it, it, I hear, I hear a lot of times people easily blaming their healthcare providers for something that went awry, and sometimes it's very much founded. I do legal nurse work, so I, I consult for attorneys on medical on birth injuries, medical malpractice cases. I tell them if this truly has any merit and I, you know, defend the nurse or I come from that angle or I come from the other angle of the plaintiff. And, um, a lot of times there's just, everyone did everything the right way. And there are sometimes also different ways, a million different ways that you can treat something and no way is wrong. And you just have to dive in that you're choosing the right way to treat this condition Which again, I think is so important for people to know that they have choices and that their provider doesn't necessarily have to decide that for them. Because if they know that they have that choice and they tell their provider, I'd like to be involved and make uh, decisions in a shared fashion together with you, then if they choose that treatment option, then they'll come out saying, Okay, listen, it was my choice. I chose it. It wasn't the provider that chose it for me. I can't place that blame on my provider.
0: Right. So, and there's definitely room for that in certain areas. Like sometimes, obviously there's a clear path that the provider will strongly recommend, but sometimes there's, there's room for the patient to have that autonomy. So yeah, it all goes back to education. So super important, you know, that you're providing that. And for anyone that wants to follow along and absolutely should any woman of, of childbearing age in the pregnancy or childbearing phase of life, you led it academy on Instagram and Khani does incredible work. And your posts are so cute also. Um, so they're really fun to look at.
1: I don't know if you have a minute to talk about COVID and pregnancy. It's like huge topic. I don't even want to get into it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can talk a little bit about it. I just also wanted to say I'm launching my own podcast called the happy birthday podcast. Um, because I started doing some, I did some live interviews of people and I said, you know what, this is so much better in a podcast. I love to listen to podcasts. I love your podcast. Your podcast is amazing. Oh, thank you. I love the name. Thank um, you. and I, I love podcasts so much because you can just listen to them when you're doing anything, cooking, cleaning, driving. I have commutes to work. So I love to listen to podcasts. Yeah, same. I learned so much on my commute to work <laughs> from podcasts. Is that why you started this one?
0: Yeah, yeah, I did. I started it a while back, because at the time I did, there wasn't really a lot of from women's voices on podcasts. And then I took a pretty long break in the beginning of COVID, because there was just so much brain energy that, you know, especially working in the emergency room with COVID patients, and then dealing with the fallout of COVID at home with my kids, thank God, they're beautiful and delicious, but they were home way too much. Um, you know, so like just everything was very intense at the time. So I took a break, but now uh, I've gotten more in the groove of it and I love doing it. And Baruch Hashem, the feedback's been very good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's great. Cause it's just another platform to spread messages and awareness and not yeah. everyone has Instagram and not everyone listens to podcasts, but it's, it's a good way to just another way to reach people. Yeah, absolutely. So to the COVID, um, what do you, what do you got for me? So just, There's so much going on
0: related to COVID and it's such a huge topic, but there's been a lot of concern lately. I actually had this from a very close friend of mine. She just texted me the other day because she is in her third trimester now and she was hearing stories, uh, especially among the from community, I guess rates of anything pregnancy related would be higher in the from community. It's just a lot of pregnant people in the from community at any given time. Um, but she said, you know, I heard there are some pregnant women that are unfortunately very sick with COVID. Um, is COVID more dangerous to pregnant women? And should I take the vaccine? Um, you know, my OB doesn't want to give me a, a hard and fast recommendation one way or another. So there's so much um, related to COVID. But I'm curious what you um, Been experiencing with COVID. I know a lot of uh, moms are concerned about delivering, you know, with limited family or with a mask on, all these different things. What can you sort of speak to just briefly um, to educate the audience a little about being pregnant in this COVID unprecedented time?
1: Yeah, so, um, like you said, women who are pregnant are definitely more susceptible to complications from COVID. Um, That's because. Our body, when we're pregnant, is in a state of a lowered immune response because we don't want the mom's body to reject her pregnancy. Um, so, naturally, a pregnant woman will be more susceptible. I also think, positional wise, you know, the respiratory tract and everything, everything is a little bit out of sorts in the typical anatomy. So, I just myself think, wonder if that has to do with it, but that's another theory that I have. I've heard um, that that decreased lung capacity because the baby's pushing up into the diaphragm, so that also puts through a puts pregnant women at a little bit of a higher risk. Definitely, yes, and and increased blood blood volume and demand. You know, there are a lot of reasons why I don't I don't know if the reasons matter as much as the facts that women are more predisposed to complications. I think it's really important for people to realize that that doesn't mean that just because you're pregnant and you get COVID, you are going to have complications. I think that sometimes we kind of just look at it as causation. Oh, if I'm pregnant, I'm definitely going to have more complications. So I just want to put that caveat into reassure mothers. I don't want them to worry unnecessarily, but just to know that there is more precautions that are in order if you are pregnant When it comes to the vaccine, I have a lot of information about the COVID vaccine and pregnancy on my Instagram. But in short, we don't have studies on uh, pregnant women and vaccines, uh, uh, COVID vaccine, I'm sorry, COVID vaccine in particular. Um, But there are certain vaccines that we we know are dangerous for women who are pregnant to get, such as the rubella vaccine, because there is a live virus in it And it's important for a mother to be immune from rubella, so her rubella titers are measured. And um, if she's not immune, she does not get the rubella vaccine during pregnancy, even though she's not immune. She has to wait until after she has the baby. However, with the COVID vaccine, ACOG, which is the American College of of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and other um, well-respected organizations that our authorities in this area have said not to withhold the COVID vaccine from pregnant women. So they're not saying you must get it, you should get it, but they're saying if you are in, um, if you are considering it, you should be offered it and you can take it. Um, It's it's a very tricky place to be. It really is. I think that so many things need to be taken into consideration when a woman is deciding whether or not she should get the vaccine. If she's a healthcare worker like you that's exposed to so much COVID, that will change things. Whereas if she's working as um, an accountant from her house all day and maybe has a two-year-old that's not going to school and she has very little exposure, that may change things. I think it will also change things if somebody is 10 weeks pregnant or 39 weeks pregnant, they're about to give birth and they may want to consider waiting until they have the baby. There's no way to give a you know, a a definite answer Um, we do know, though, that people who have gotten the vaccine in studies and have found out that they were pregnant, all did fine. It wasn't a large amount of people. But um, and then when it comes to thankfully, I haven't seen major complications on with my COVID patients that were pregnant and gave birth, thankfully, um, and babies as well. And I want to give that reassurance because babies do fine. I don't know if I've even heard of, I mean, there was maybe one or two isolated cases, I think in the U S where babies didn't do fine and maybe had other comorbidities, but otherwise um, babies do fine. Thankfully, we do not separate mothers from their babies anymore. There was a push to do that in the beginning, which didn't really make much sense to me because you would think that the mother has antibodies if she has COVID and her breast milk would help and whatever it was, thankfully, the World Health Organization came out and said, do not separate mothers um, and their babies. Um, So for mothers afraid that she has COVID, she, um, that she'll be separated from her baby unless her baby is going to NICU, it won't happen. When it comes to wearing masks, I have gotten a lot of concerns from women who are going to have a baby saying, I don't know how I'm going to do labor with the mask. I totally get that. I also sometimes can feel claustrophobic. However, I've had an overwhelmingly positive um, experience with patients who had to wear masks. A lot of them will say they just even forgot that the mask was on um, because it is a rule in our hospital that you need to wear a mask. Uh, every patient does when there's any healthcare worker work or when there's anyone in the room. But if you need to take it off because you're feeling claustrophobic, because you're feeling uncomfortable... I don't think anyone is gonna you know, suffocate you and force that mask back on you. Um, we do all wear N95s and goggles and everything during deliveries because it's considered an aerosolizing procedure. And also because we aerosolize because we coach the patient. So we're spitting a lot potentially. So it's actually also to protect our patient. So I think that it should not be worry. Nobody can force you to do anything. You want, to, you want to be cooperative. You have to realize that these healthcare workers are working with other patients and we, you don't want to make them sick. So you want to wear the mask, but if it's super uncomfortable, I wouldn't lose sleep over it. You just really apologize and say, you're so sorry, but you really cannot um, wear it right now. You feel like you can't breathe. You know, you just say you have claustrophobia, whatever it is. So that's that piece. Um, the piece about birth partners that you said, it is very difficult for people who have to choose between either their husband or a support person that they otherwise would have brought them together. In New York state, there is that rule about um, making uh, sure that if a patient wants a doula, the doula can come along with her partner, along with you know her husband or other partner to the birth. Um, it's not like that everywhere. I know that in Canada, that's not the case. It, women have to choose between one person that's going to come with them, and for, for a firm woman, that's especially difficult because of the need to rules. And that's again where I come in and say you have to speak to your rabbi and figure out what you can and cannot do because there may be leniencies. In the same way, where a lot of break Shabbos for a woman that's in labor and you know just for comfort reasons, like there's a halacha that says if a blind woman asks for the lights to be turned on on Shabbos because she'll be more comfortable that her healthcare team sees her and sees what's going on, then we do that. So, um, it is, it is hard. You can have zoom. Also, there are people that will have family members or someone who would otherwise be with them. They have them on video with that. That's such a nice idea. I didn't, that
0: never occurred to me. That's very cute. And you know, they don't have to leave the comfort of their home.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's second best. They can't, massage them, apply counter pressure, but yeah, it's just someone comforting that's there. That's also seeing what's going on. So there, if there are any interactions with the healthcare team that are iffy, the patient just, the woman can just feel a little bit more protected. I will also tell you that one positive thing that has come out is that the visitor restrictions on the postpartum side, we've gotten overwhelming positive feedback from patients that they really liked it. They don't have to be polite to anyone when the baby cries, they can breastfeed the baby. And it's so awkward when you're breastfeeding a newborn. If it's your first time, it's super awkward figuring all the positions out and getting the latch. And you want to be polite to all these visitors that you have, but you're in the hospital with so many people, so many nurses that are there literally, like we began our conversation with to teach you and tell you how to do everything. And Parents have been taking advantage of that much more now, and we've really seen a much happier experience through that. I have to say the fathers in our hospital, they can't leave. Um, If they leave, they can't come back. So a lot of times they also make arrangements that someone else will be with any other responsibilities, children or other responsibilities that they have, and they stay in the hospital and they can also be hands-on and learn too. So there are definitely good things that have come out of it. They really, there really are. Um, It's difficult. It's really difficult. I just keep looking toward the future. I'm so grateful that we have a vaccine. I don't know. I'm thinking maybe full-time. What do you think? Maybe we'll start getting back into normalcy. I just heard end of 2021,
0: but, you know, they keep kind of pushing the goalposts because then they realize the reality of, you know, in theory, it sounds good. Like, we'll just vaccinate everyone. Boom, done. But the reality is obviously it's not happening as smoothly as uh, as was hoped um so i just heard from a vaccine expert at nyu on another podcast um, i'm going to plug my friend's podcast in joma j-o-w-m-a oh, they're she great, does an yeah. amazing health prevention podcast um so if anyone's interested but um yeah she had a vaccine expert from nyu who said maybe end of 2021 But I did just see that travel restrictions for vaccinated people are going to change and may not require quarantine, like, you know, for everyone else. So hopefully, you know, advantages are starting to crop up for people that do get vaccinated and hopefully that'll encourage more people to do it. Um, And hopefully the vaccine will be more available to people. So yeah, I mean, uh, it's a, it's a tough time, like you said, but I think hopefully an end is in sight. And another really positive thing that this expert said was, um, so far, they're seeing in lab studies, um, tougher to study that in the human population right now. But in lab studies, they're seeing that these different variants that have been found in the UK and South Africa, um, they do seem to be responsive to the vaccine in lab studies. So Merit Hashem, hopefully things will start to get back to normal. I know like for for us also as healthcare workers, it's been a particularly tough time and, you know, trying to take care of your patients who are also struggling, you know, while we're struggling, everyone's really struggling and the anxiety level, just universally is so high. And I can't imagine um, having a baby during this time must be really tough for so many people and you deal with that. So Um, you know, it's a, it's an amazing role with so much opportunity and like for you to make people more comfortable while they're going through this.
1: Yeah. Um, and I have to mention you saying that, especially in the beginning when there were so many restrictions and we knew that so many parents were going home with, to no help because of all of the social distancing rules, um, going back to the nursery that you were talking about. So some nurses get, can get judgy, as I'm sure you've maybe encountered or heard about maybe maybe once or twice, (laughs) how can you send your baby out? Like, oh my gosh, you're not going to bond with your baby for life. So, um, I will say it's more the younger nurses that don't have kids of their own. Um, so when a nurse said something to me about that, I said to her, I said, I'm sorry, I have to stop you right now and let you know that this woman is going home to a two-year-old and a four-year-old with no help. It's okay for her to have that night where she can just sleep before she goes home to all of that after she had a C-section mind you it's right. okay for her she needs that so and I, my yeah. heart went out to the first time
0: moms especially because there's nothing that can prepare you for that first baby and you know usually most people have some sort of support system in place or even if they don't have a close family they can at least easily get to the store to buy diapers and formula and like all of that changed and like, couldn't even get, if you had to go to the grocery, if you remember, it feels like a long time ago, I just stand on lines, you know, for an hour trying to get into the grocery. Like, Can you imagine doing that during the postpartum phase or like having to be home with with the baby all alone while maybe your your spouse runs out to the grocery, but has to stand online for hours. So it's like a crazy long process and you're left all alone. I, I remember thinking about that, like all these brand new moms, it must be incredibly hard. And
1: yeah. Yeah. And lactation support too that's been a very big issue in the beginning because of lactation consultants were not going to homes and you really need a hands-on to get the to to troubleshoot yeah so yeah I mean there's a lot and postpartum depression rates have gone sky high up really Mm -hmm. yeah I I mean I I think that that's all very much expected. Why are we surprised? with Yeah, I know what I had. I hadn't thought of
0: it. That's why I'm surprised. But it's in line with everything else, because I'm seeing anxiety and depression rates through the roof in my patients. And I, and that that support team that typically comes together to help a new mom, right? And all the positive feedback, Oh, my gosh, the baby's so adorable. Here, let me take him for an hour, you get a nap, whatever, all that stuff is is gone or, or much, much less. And I can't, it it must be terribly difficult for people
1: dealing with that. Yeah. It will definitely be a time that we will remember. Yeah. Well,
0: thank you so much for joining me and doing this podcast. You, I feel like I could do five episodes with you, but I guess that's what your own podcast is going to be for, um, because there's so much to learn in this topic, but, um, I just want to encourage anyone listening, especially women again, to check out your page. It's really fun. Your topics are so relatable and so important. And like we were talking all along, having the knowledge being empowered so that when you go into a certain situation, you'll know what the options are, what you can do to advocate for yourself. Um, It's so important and it's so great that you're doing this. So thank
1: you so much again for your time and your expertise and your knowledge. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Maybe you'll hop onto my podcast one day and tell your birth stories. I would love to. One day. That would really be fun. Thanks, Ricky. It was so great getting to know you. Thank you. Thank you so much.